everyone. Welcome to In The Cordon, the place where every cricketer wants to be. I'm your host, Callum Dunk, and joining me on the show tonight, we have a couple of TikTok stars from the Div 12 Resis. Will Taylor, how are you, mate? I'm very good, Dunky. Very, very good. Um, yeah, stoked to be on the stoked to be on the pod. Um, happy to talk about something that's right up my alley. That's good to hear, mate. And we've also got Jared Davis as well. Jarrah, how are you, mate? Very, very good. Very excited to be here. Um, ready to talk some cricket. Absolutely. I'm glad to be uh, joint. Uh, you know, hanging out with you boys this evening, just talking a little bit about the Ashes. And let's start off with. Um, whether 2-2 was a fair result in the series. I'm probably of the opinion myself that England certainly played the better cricket throughout the series. And if it wasn't for that rained out test at Old Trafford, you'd probably say that England would have won the series uh, 3-2. Cricket's a funny game though. Um, But I think Australia won the key moments in those first two test matches Pat Cummins was pretty, pretty cool, calm and collected at Edgebaston in that first test. And Nathan Lyon as well. You know, Pat Cummins ended up finishing with 41 not out and Nathan Lyon was 16 when Australia were in a little bit of trouble. At Lords, you know, Carey's stumping of Johnny Bairstow was pretty crucial in that game. And um, they were able to hold their nerve as a lot of people thought that Lords was going to be Headingley 2.0, unfortunately. England bounced back really well at Headingley. And, the inclusions of Mark Wood and Chris Wokes in particular were really able to, you know, get back England back into the contest as well. Old Trafford was pretty much a shit show from an Australian point of view in terms of team selection and the tactics that were on display. Um, and I thought England, you know, played quite well at the Oval. Australia had their opportunity to to win that game. But, um, you know, if we talk about Wokes, and Mullen Alley on the last day was really critical and it was a fitting way to uh, finish Stuart Broad's career as well. So, Jarrah, I'll start with you, mate. What was your thoughts on the scoreline and just overall thoughts about the series? Um, yeah, I think I think the first two tests, we definitely controlled them. And I think after that, I think we were just, we got beat pretty convincingly. So I think 2-2 was pretty lucky um, for the Australians. I think we probably should have lost the third one. Um, if it weren't for the weather. So I think we're pretty lucky to escape with, I guess, not a series win, but a, but a you know retaining the ashes just in general. Uh, but I thought it was a massive win for Basball. I think a lot of people coming into the series thought that this was where Basball was going to get found out. Um, Australia was going to be too good for it. Um, the bowling was going to, I mean, the attacking batting was, was just going to be found out by Australia's bowlers. But I think I think the the style of play that they that they Board was well one extremely entertaining, but also challenged the Australian bowlers a lot, um, and it forced us to play a completely different style. And when they got on the front foot, they just looked a million times better than us. So I thought we were pretty lucky to retain the Ashes. Um, and if uh, weather hadn't have uh, ruined that third test, I think we would have. Uh, I think we would have lost the series pretty pretty convincingly in those last three tests. Yeah, would agree with a lot of your thoughts there. And and Will, what were your thoughts on the scoreline? And is it a fle- a fair reflection of the series? Um, I think both of you boys hit the nail on the head pretty well there. I think first two tests we definitely showed um, showed our colours. Uh, 
Australia colours well. And then the last three tests were pretty dominated by by England. Um, Zach Crawley and Joe Root uh, just dominating with the bat. Uh, anything you bowl of them, it seemed to be getting hit to the boundary. Uh, but at Old Trafford, there was a, yeah, the skills, the tactics was just not anywhere to be seen. And um, 2-2, I think, is a definitely a lucky escape for the, the Aussies. I personally feel it's just such a wasted opportunity considering we were 2-0 up in the series. And um, I just think Ben Stokes' innings at Lords just changed and flipped the dynamic in the series, along with the injury to Nathan Lyon. Unfortunately, Lyon was ruled out of the last three test matches with that nasty calf injury. Um, but Stokes' 155 at Lords, I think just, even though England didn't win that game, I just think it completely changed the the, the dynamic of what was going on and um, whether the English crowd on day five at Lords really got into the heads of the Australians and whether they were able to recover from that is a, you know, it's a little bit of an unknown at this point. But um, I think just with England, I touched on earlier, Chris Wokes played three test matches in the series and took 19 wickets at an average of 18. And the inclusion of Mark Wood, he took five for 34 in the first innings at Headingley and that really set up, you know, the the comeback for, for England. But the next hot topic that I'd really like to talk about with you boys, and we touched on this on Friday night when we caught up at the Div 12 Resis game, was the captaincy of Pat Cummins. and. Um, Australia's last two captains in Cummins and Tim Payne, they haven't been the most strong in terms of their tactical side of the game, but they've been really good man managers. I thought Cummins was extremely found out in this series and just started with Stokes getting into their heads at Lord's foot for mine and just some of the obscure tactics, um, you know, Stokes would face out the first four balls, but they wouldn't bring the field in for balls five and six of the over. So Stokes was easily allowed to get a single um, and get himself up the other end, protecting the tail ender. Um, Old Trafford, I think, was the worst of Pat's tactics as captain. Um, and, you know, people don't care about your captaincy when you're beating up the West Indies and South Africa at home. But I think this is the first, other than India, the first proper time that Cummins' captaincy has been tested. And um, I think particularly at Headingley, we had such an opportunity to get a lead of, you know, potentially 75 to 100 runs in that first innings. And Stokes was able to, you know, put on, somewhere between 50 to 60 with Stuart Broad at the end for the last wicket. So I thought that was um, a critical moment in the series that we just got wrong. So, Will, what were your thoughts on Cummins' captaincy? And uh, there's been some talk that Cummins will give up the white ball captaincy post the 23 World Cup in India in October. Um, Do you think he should potentially give it up in test cricket as well? Um, I feel like I feel like these his test captaincy, like you said, was very 
uh, challenged and tested throughout this series. Obviously, with a few series past being um, against easier sides. I think with the fast, I was a bit skeptical about the the fast bowler captaincy chosen when um, Tim Payne um, left the test side. And but at that stage, I feel like it was the right call as well because there was no there was no batters in the side that were putting their hand up to sort of take up take on the role. Uh, I think I think though, yeah, he just looked a bit tired, a bit worn out um, with the whole with the whole series because we've got to remember at the start there was the World Test Championship against India um, in England and it just that would have taken a lot out of the lot out of the team, and um, yeah, it would have been a long time in England. So I think it was a real test of his patience, and um, yeah, I think yeah, standing up in the big moments, it's hard. It's hard being a bowler trying to set fields and um, also work out bowling plans when you're trying to bring down 140 clicks every. Every six balls and over. Yeah, I would uh, say that this could be a warning sign for Australia heading over to the the fifty over World Cup in India, and you know, with one day cricket and white ball cricket, they're just going to come hard at you, and it's more, you know, those that's where you truly get tested on your tactics as a captain, um, because you've got to think about all your bowling changes, all your matchups. Obviously, there's those elements in test cricket as well, but it's just focused on so much more in white ball cricket. Uh, Jarrah, what were your thoughts on the captaincy of Pat Cummins and are people potentially being too harsh or um, is there a emphasis on the, the coaching staff of the Australian cricket team that they weren't really supporting him or telling him to change things up as much as he probably should have? Um, I think they might be being a little bit harsh. I think he definitely got overwhelmed um, at points. After the first test at Edgbaston and he went on that great batting uh, partnership with Lyon to win the game, I think he was on such a high and then England just started to sort of take over the series and got and he got put on the back foot for maybe the first time in a in a series um, under his captaincy where he really had to start questioning things. And like just in regards to like the field placements, by having fielders on the boundary, a lot of the times he was scared of the of, of leaking runs to the to the attacking style of basketball, where where England were happy to smack around the ball and, and I think those sort of fielding positions were fearful in a sense of I don't want to get smashed every over for ten runs trying to get a wicket for Straw Broad. Um so I think there was a little bit of indecision. And then I think, yeah, as being a bowler and he didn't have probably the best bowling series that he's had, um, the pressure of one, you've got to bowl yourself as being, you know, one of the best bowlers in the world and maybe you're not getting the wickets or you're not getting the sort of um, results that you want as an individual bowler. And then worry about the fielding placements as well. I think there was just a lot going on that he probably hadn't have had to deal with in a while or pretty much ever. So I think it was a bit of a – I think it was just overwhelming for him um, being the first time that he's had to sort of face up to that. So I think people are being a little bit sort of um, too harsh, but it's definitely not great signs to see. <laughs> we'll see how he recovers. 
Yeah, and just wanted to touch on your comment regarding economy rates. So Stark ended up finishing with the series with 23 wickets at an average of 27, economy rate of five and a half runs per over, strike rate of 29.6. So that the strike rate numbers are really good. Economy is quite expensive. Cummins was averaging 37 with the ball, 4.6 with the, in terms of economy runs per over, uh, and a strike rate of 48 and a half. Hazelwood finished the series with an economy rate of uh, 5.2, average of 31.7. So, and the best of our bowlers was actually Nathan Lyon. Uh, in the two test matches he played, he's took nine wickets for the series, average of 29, economy of four, and a strike rate of 44. So um, I think their injury to Nathan Lyon has been very... Undertalked, I suppose, um, and I think if Lyon played particularly at the the Headingley Test match, um, I certainly think Australia would have been in a much better position to win that game. And that's nothing against Todd Murphy, um, but you know the class of Nathan Lyon is just completely outstanding, and he was sorely missed in that series. Boys, before we touch on our Three, two, one players of the series. Just want to run through a few extra stats. So Usman Kawaja was the leading run scorer in the series with 496 runs. Zach Crawley was 480 in second place. Joe Root was 412. His 118 not out at Edgebaston was a particularly fantastic knock. Uh, ben Stokes finished in fourth place with 405 runs. Smith, 373. Harry Brook, uh, 363, Travis Head 362, and Marnus Labashane finished with 328. In terms of the bowling, Stark was the leading wicket taker despite playing only four test matches with 23. Stuart Broad was 22 and played all five games. Wokes, we touched on, was the player of the series. Three matches, 19 wickets at an average of 18 with the ball. Cummins took 18, Hazelwood 16. Mark Wood took 14 in three matches. So um, in terms of players that had the biggest impact on the series, uh, I will give uh, one vote to Zach Crawley. Um, I think he was pretty outstanding in this series. Uh, his 189 at Old Trafford was, was top-notch. Um, I'm actually going to go with Mark Wood in second place. I thought he actually had a really big impact on the series and I know that Wokes scored some handy runs as well but I think the spell of 5 for 34 just really turned it in England's favour um, and then in first place I've gone with Usman Kawaja leading run scorer 496 runs uh, and was critical in that first test match scoring 141 and 71 so that's my 3-2-1 um, interested to see if your opinion, opinions are different uh, Will, would you like to go next, mate? Uh, okay, so I'll start from the top. I think three votes will go to Usman Kawaja um, in a test series that seemed to be Aussies' backs against the wall and trying to trying to dig a hole, uh, dig us out of a hole. Um, he sort of fronted up each time with the same mindset, same approach. He never tried to change the way he played. And it showed um, with the amount of runs that he scored was awesome. 
And then on the other on the other hand, uh, two votes to Zach Crawley. He was, yeah, just dominant with the bats. Um, made out bowlers look like fools. And uh, he he's flipped, his, he's flipped his career around from when he played the Ashes in Australia. I feel like he was very tentative, uh, like didn't want to come out of his shell. Looked a bit like a an old Alistair Cook in in Australia, just not really wanting to budge. But yeah, he tacked on the front foot, um, really took it to our bowlers. And then number one, I've got I've tossed up between Mark Wood and Mitchell Stark, but I'm going to give the one vote to Mitchell Stark only off the basis of there's been a lot of a lot of talk about why Stark is still is still is in the test side. Um, but why does he keep going? He he's a left armor, which is exactly what we need in the lineup. He reverses the ball and he was doing he was doing all sorts with the with the ball. Like he turned into a strike bowler for us and yeah, I think he wound back wound back the clock a little bit with his bowling. Absolutely. And Jara, uh, what were your thoughts about the best players in the series? Who's your three, two, one? I think you guys have uh, sort of taken most of the good answers. So I think Uzi's up there, but I'm going to leave him out just so we get some other players involved. I think we'll go Mark Wood can get my one vote. I mean, he came in and just, he really did change the series. I mean, as soon as he came on, he's bowling so quick. Australia was just straight on the back foot. Uh, from the very start, he got the crowd involved a lot. Um, so I think he definitely came in, changed the game quite a lot. Um, Stark gets my two votes. Definitely, almost carried the Australian bowls after um, Lyons' injury. And I think without him, we would have uh, struggled quite a lot to um, maintain the pressure and obviously get wickets. And then I'm going to give my three votes to Joe Root. I think severely underrated. Came in and averaged fifty odd with the bat, bought in. And then I think what people underestimated was not only the amount of catches he took throughout the series, but when Moe and Ali couldn't bowl consistent overs, he came in, he economy rate around about four and over, took a few wickets and really clamped down one end, giving uh, Moe in enough time to recover and then just pretty much held down one end for um, almost matches at a time. So I thought he definitely deserved a little bit of uh, credit that you guys might have missed. No, very good from you, Jarrah. Very good from you, Jarrah. That's good. Um, boys, I just wanted to touch on David Warner. Um, he scored 250s in the series, and there was a lot of conjecture about whether he should have played uh, the fourth test match at Old Trafford and then the fifth test match at the Oval after a pretty average game at Headingley, to be perfectly honest. Just... In out in the fashion that we've seen before with Stuart Broad going around the wicket. Um, what did you make of Warner's performances throughout the series and was he right in retaining his place um, for the last couple of test matches? Will? Uh, you can you can sort of you can sort of it's 50-50 like you can sort of Argue for both sides on that one. Like, so it's always it's always hard. Um, yeah, it's always hard to sort of. 
I've, I've lost words. So, so sorry about that. Um, yeah, it's yeah, it's so hard to. I feel like with David Warner, it's we've got no one kicking down the front door to take his spot. Um, but Matt Renshaw isn't lining up the world. Um, Cam Bancroft, I haven't been heard of him in ages. Marcus Harris, the other lefty on tour, but these guys aren't these guys aren't blazing away with their cricket. Um, but it's just a matter of time. Um, with the ticking time bomb and but yeah, the last innings he sort of played a bit of a bit of a pinch hitting role and started to freeze arms a bit more, but I don't know if that's that doesn't feel it shouldn't fill people with confidence. But that has to happen a few times. Like could have been could have been a fluke that he did it in that last one or in the last one he's like, All right, well, if I get if I get out, I get out. But yeah, I feel like we'd need to see a few more innings. But I highly doubt we will seeing he's pretty much calling quits on his career after the Australian summer. And Jarrah, your thoughts on David Warner? Um, it's a very interesting sort of case because he is probably the only opening batsman that we that we've sort of got outside of Kawaja, obviously. Um, obviously Marcus Harris has been tried and sort of worked, sort of didn't work. Renshaw's had his go and probably didn't quite impress as much as we much as we wanted. It's not that he's doing a horrendously bad job. He's just probably not performing to the expectation that we sort of put on him to make almost fifty every innings. Um, he got he was average. You know, he didn't do horrendously bad. I think he got a couple times where he went out to broad, especially a bit, maybe a bit lazily. Um, so that's not great signs. But that last innings, I thought he played really, really well. And there's really no one asking for his spot. If you're being honest, I think when you're getting to the point of uh, online where people are saying that you know we should drop Warner and have Michael Nisa open, it probably shows you the state that. Maybe our opening batsman um, situation isn't necessarily the strongest part of our team, and that's probably why he's still a pretty much a shoe in, especially coming up to the Australian summer. Yeah, you bo- you boys both make really valid comments about there's just no one in first class cricket who is truly knocking down the door. Um, I did a post on Instagram sort of around February, March, saying that Cameron Bancroft was unlucky um, not to be considered by the Australian selectors. And I think it was genuinely a mistake as well in the in the squad announcement not to, to take him. The last time he played Test cricket was in England four years ago and he had a tough time. But considering that, he was absolutely battered by the Barmy Army and, and the British crowds for... Sam Papergate all those years ago. So um, he scored over 750 runs in Shield cricket last year, at least four centuries um, that he scored as well. So, yeah, there's no there's no easy answer. I think Australia did make the right decision in sticking with Warner, but we've seen Harris play, come in and play. I don't think he would have done any better than Warner, to be honest. Renshaw, I still would believe is the next logical opener 
I don't say that with confidence, but I still think he's the next logical opener. Um, but it could be a really good opportunity for Australia when Warner does officially retire after the Sydney test against Pakistan to try and blood um, a 20, a 21-year-old and have them try and play for the next 10 years. Uh, we just got to find someone who shows that potential and almost just go on a gut feeling, I reckon, um, because it's really hard. Before we move on to our next topic, we just want to give a shout out to our sponsors, Acruck Sports. Acruck Sports have just joined us as a sponsor. We have some gift cards to give away. So ensure that you stay tuned to our social media pages for those giveaways. And it will be a great way to go and get your cricket gear for the upcoming seasons. Acruck Sports have two locations at Holden Hill on North East Road as well as at Edwardstown in Adelaide. So make sure you head over there and get yourself a great discount into for the upcoming season. Hopefully, you'll hit a few out of the middle. Boys, um, we want to talk about now what moment had the greatest impact in the series. And I won't go first this time because I feel like I've gone first every other time. But, Jarrah, what was your... Um, moment of the series that had the greatest impact on the results? Um, I think you could point to quite a few different moments that I'm sure you guys will touch on, but I'm going to focus on, I think the inclusion of Wokes and Wood in the third test essentially changed the series, flipped it on its head completely. And it wasn't just their, um, their ability with the ball, Wood coming in bowling 150 clicks, getting Pfeiffer in that first test that he came in for. And then obviously Wokes coming on and just being super, super consistent. But their ability with the bat as well just forced England to be able to bat so deep. I mean, that partnership that um, that he had with um, Harry Brook and then pretty much their partnership to win that test was just pretty much unbelievable. So I think the inclusion of those two definitely changed the series, especially the momentum of the series, um, back into England's favour. It's uh, good that you mentioned that because Chris Wokes actually has a better average with the ball in England than both Broad and Anderson. And considering that Wokes has bowled first change for most of his career, uh, now with you know Broad retiring and Anderson probably not too far away, Wokes could seriously step up his test game even further when he does have access to the to the new ball. And as you mentioned, Jarrah, the, the fact that he's able to score those runs down the order was was pretty critical, um, as particularly in that third test match at Headingley, um, when I think what was it? After lunch on the second day, Wood came out and smashed about forty off about ten or so deliveries. So that was a pretty critical moment in the game to lead into the the Stokes and Broad partnership at the end of the innings. Will, what was your most defining moment of the series? Well, I definitely, like Jared was saying, the inclusion of Mark Wood, Chris Wokes. Um, the tests where Wokes was just at the ball on a string to David Warner and some of the other uh, top order batsmen for Australia, but Mark Wood coming in, um, I don't think the Aussies have faced 150 clicks for for ages for 
for years. Um, and it showed, it sh- they looked shell shocked. Um, and the way that Chris Wokes was able to swing the ball, nip it away, um, late swing as well. Like <clears throat> the inclusion of those two, um, as opposed to, well, James Anderson only lost his spot for what one test or something, but those, yeah. Yeah, those two bowlers really made a massive impact from, yeah, from my point of view. I've got two that I'll go with. Um, the first one that I'll go with is the Johnny Bairstow run out, stumping technically off Cameron Green. I think that just seriously fired up England like nothing that I've ever seen before. Um, and... You all, I always kind of felt after that game because England were so angry, so riled up, that was just going to give them... And Stokes' innings contributes to that as well. It was a way that they could turn around and shift the momentum in the series. And Australia, you know, before lunch on day five, were really struggling and you didn't know what was going to happen in that particular game. And, you know, if... Steve Smith holds that catch at deep square leg. You know, it's probably not talked about as much, but the the fact that he was able to go on to 155 Stokes, um, that was pretty telling. And it was a, a real captain's knock, as we've uh, talked about in years gone by. Famous Ashes knocks. Uh, that's going to stand the test of time as well. My critical moment was, and I don't want to blame this on a singular player, uh, but Alex Carey dropping Harry Brook on five and then goes on to make 85 and Australia lose by 50 runs. Um, and that's this isn't just directed at Alex Carey. I love Alex Carey, South Australian, you know, want him to do well. But uh, the fact that Australia won the toss, elected to bowl, and we've learned in previous test matches that you do not bowl first at the Oval. Look back at 2019 and India in the World Test Championship final in recent history. You don't bowl first at the Oval. You bat first, you bat big, and you get your spinner into the game on days four and five. But when you do send in the opposition in, you better make sure that you take your bloody catches. The old saying, catches win matches. So when you drop five, uh, and the team, Australia did well to rein them into you know, a pretty low score compared to what it could have been considering they were three for 120 at lunch. I thought that was a pretty telling moment in the series and who knows what way the game would have gone had Kerry taken that one. Um, Hindsight is a wonderful thing. Boys, um, I just want to talk about what's next for Cricket Australia um, in terms of what this team's going to look like because it will be a large portion of this team's last chance to win a series in England. And unfortunately, they're not going to get that opportunity with the 2-2 scoreline. They've been able to retain it a couple of times, which is still a great achievement in the scheme of things. But to win just has that different feel about it. Um, We've got two opening batsmen who are 36. Steve Smith is on the cusp of you know, potentially being able to go around again. He's 34 at the moment. Um, we've got a bo- an ageing bowling attack. 
uh, with Hazelwood 32, Starks 33 now. Cummins has just turned 30, so you think he gets another crack in England. But we also have a 35-year-old a spinner in Nathan Lyon who's still bowling really well, um, but whether he could make it four years around, you know, the trip four years later um, is a different story. Just want to get your thoughts on, you know, some potential inclusions, I suppose, for this Australian team as we move forward. Um, David Warner's announced that he'll make his retirement or would like to make his retirement, I should say, at the end of the Sydney test, the end of the New Year's test at Sydney against Pakistan. That's when he wants to hang, hang up the bat, um, I suppose. But, um, Jara, where do you think this Australian team's going in terms of... Um, could this Australian team fall away quite quickly if these retirements and send-offs are not managed correctly, I suppose? If they weren't managed correctly, they the team could absolutely fall down very, very quickly. But I think I think we'll do a pretty good job of staggering the sort of league. So you'll obviously start with Warner and Kawadra be, I assume, soon to follow after that. Um, so getting that opening batsman spot filled quickly um, and hopefully pick the right bloke or the right blokes um, in the first sort of couple chances that they get that's a that's a huge that'd be a massive um, task for the for the team to figure out and then when it comes to the bowlers I think we're pretty stocked uh, we've got quite a few good young bowlers coming in I mean um, players like Mitch Perry who's only sort of 22 23 um, bringing those guys into the fold of um, test cricket uh, would be great, especially for the next couple of years if um, our bowlers right now can sort of stick out for another two, maybe three years and then get these guys in when they're sort of, you know, 24, 25, 26 and then having them for the next sort of, you know, eight to 10 years would be pretty good. So I think if our bowlers can hold out for the next few years, um, I think we'll be good to go. Anything further to add to that one, Will? Yeah, I think we just need to start mixing it up a little bit i know i know you if it ain't broke don't fix it but like jared was saying there's only so much time we have left with both warner and kawaja opening up um i'd like to see teg wiley at the top young kid who is rock solid with the bat um i think he's gonna he's showing some good signs throughout his sheffield shields um stints that he's had um, I'd like to see Mitch Perry as well in in the bowling attack, but even just like the, I feel like we missed the missed the boat with Michael Nisa a bit. Um, like he's thirty three now and still playing good cricket, but I think we just need to inject a bit of youth. And I I liked the way we did it throughout England, having depending on the pitch that we had Scott Boland and. Stark one game and then next game we had Hazelwood and Stark and then the next game it was Scott Bolin and Todd Murphy. Um, I th we just need to start making a bit of a change because we've seen that India is able to do it. Like They're very flexible with the way that their team plays and yes, they've got a lot more cricketers in their population but I feel like there's a lot of talent that's just going to waste and some very good Sheffield Shield cricketers out there who should have their turn in the in the big in the big dance. Yeah, I would agree with 
a lot of what you blokes have said there, but um, I think it's just more the way that Australia do it. Do you rip the Band-Aid off, I suppose, and potentially have a couple of years or a year where you're, you know, not going so great in test cricket and use the opportunity against a weak uh, West Indies team, a Pakistan team that would be somewhat competitive with the the fast bowlers that they've got, but they've always seemed to struggle in Australian conditions when they have come out. Uh, But then following that, you're going to New Zealand and playing against a pretty competitive New Zealand side. Um, And you're going to get green tops there as your opening batsman. So it might be a good time for Kawaja to hang up, (laughs) finish up as well before he gets exposed to potentially Trent Bolt and uh, Tim Southey on New Zealand green tops, which is never an easy place to go. But yeah, as I said earlier in the podcast today, I think just trying to get a younger opening batsman. um, Look, I probably still think they'll go to one of Renshaw or Harris, considering they've been around the team for the last 12 months. But I would be encouraging the selectors to, you know, look beyond the horizon, as they say, and, um, try and pluck someone from out of nowhere, someone who's obviously in form, but try and, you know, pluck maybe a, a lesser name that might um, surprise a few people when they get their opportunity. I suppose in the bowling department as well, you know, Stark's 33, so you only imagine he's probably got max sort of 18 months, two years left. Um, Hazelwood, his body's pretty cooked at the moment. Uh, he's still able to play four test matches here, but um, did need the the breaks and the fact that there was so much rain in Manchester helped him play back-to-back test matches. And to reiterate your point, Will, about Michael Nisa, just one of the most unlucky blokes in Australian cricket, kind of reminds me of South Australia's own Chad Sayers. And Chad and I talked about this on the podcast when he appeared a few months back about um, unfortunately, Nisa is just such a victim of Cummins, Hazelwood and Stark being as good as they are. Um, I still think Nisa should get some opportunities in the Australian summer, particularly if one of the, the guys gets injured. But, um, you know, when you've got a bowler like Scott Boland waiting in the wings, um, yeah, it's hard to ignore that. I would like to see them introduce a few quicks, maybe more in the one-day side and the T20 side uh, to get them some international experience. Spencer Johnson looks like a great prospect for for South Australia, what he was able to do with the Brisbane Heat and then follow that up with, um, you know, Fifers on debut for for South Australia was really exciting. You mentioned Mitch Perry from Victoria as well. um, And there's a couple of really good young quicks up in Queensland. We've seen Lance Morris as well around the squad for um, the India test matches and in the Australian summer, he was, he nearly played that day-night test match at Adelaide Oval. Uh, what's the future of baseball, gentlemen? England travelled to India. It's actually quite a break between drinks for England um, in terms of playing test cricket with a lot of white ball cricket coming up with the World Cups um, within the next 12 months. Um, what? Where to next for England? Can they maintain their baseball mantra against a very good Indian spin bowling attack, which will consist of Ashwin, Jadeja, Axar Patel, potentially Kuldeep Yadav. Um, 
and some good seamers as well in Jasper Brumra, Mohamed Shami, Mohamed Suraj as well. Will, what what are your thoughts about in England going to uh, India next? I'm interested to see how they approach it. Um, look, it could could go either way. They could make 500 and so many in so little balls. Um, they could get bowled F80. I think it's it depends on depends on the day of or the pitch or the conditions that they're playing in. Um, like if they if they back themselves into to tee off from ball one and Zach Crawley tries to blaze away. Um, I reckon it's a confidence, it'll be a confidence thing for the English side, um, whether or not they want to go back into their shell and play the old English way that saw them losing consecutive test series, um, especially in India and in industry, in Australia. Um, but yeah, I think They've got the confidence to do so. Um, yeah, can't wait to see it. And Jarrett, any further thoughts to add to England's trip to uh, the subcontinent? Yeah, as Will said, I'm extremely excited to see how it goes for them. I think at this point, they have to stick with it. Um, they saw the success that it had in the last sort of three tests here where they pretty much just overwhelmed us essentially. For a lot of it, um, I think you have to do it. It'll be interesting to see how it plays in those sort of conditions against those sort of top tier um, spin attacks. But yeah, it's going to be a very exciting series. I can't wait to watch it. Yes, and we'll certainly be covering that series when it happens here on In the Corner. Uh, boys, I just wanted to say a big thank you for coming on the show tonight. Uh, it was obviously great to meet up at the Div 12 Resis on on Friday night, but um, to continue our chats, our cricket chats and drunk cricket chats, I suppose, at the footy club and continue them on the podcast has been uh, really fun and certainly hope that we can uh, do this again at some point in the future. So thanks, fellas. Absolutely. Pleasure. What an awesome time. Anytime you want it, me. That's good to hear. Thank you so much to those of you who are tuning in at home. Make sure that you follow our social media pages for more updates about the world of cricket. And we'll see you on our next episode. Take care, everyone. Cheers.